Our New Testament reading comes from Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 through chapter 4, verse 11. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and sent him, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. One Ancient Hope, it's good to be with you this morning as we look at this text together, um, the baptism of the Lord. And actually, Matthew just told me I always make mistakes about this. It was not Trinity Sunday, it's Baptism of the Lord um, Sunday. So um, Matthew always keeps me straight with all things liturgical and, uh, and ecclesial. So I think Trinity Sunday is actually, um, if I was a better Presbyterian, I think I would know the answer to this. I think it's sometime in the spring. Blake? After Pentecost. After Pentecost. So um, thank you for keeping me honest about the church calendar. That's, that's important. <laughs> and a number of other things. Um, I have no, no ability or penchant for detail. Um, Matthew even dresses me in the morning. I can pretty much know. I'm joking. <laughs> I'm joking. But, um, but this is the baptism. Well, we're celebrating baptism of the Lord's Sunday. Um, this is just a beautiful text. And like I said, there's, there's so many wonderful theological and biblical themes that, that come together here. Um, So before we turn to this wonderful passage, let's, as the people of God, turn together to the Lord in prayer. Um, God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for this passage. We thank you, Lord, for the ministry of Christ that has begun and inaugurated here. We thank you for what he has done for us. We thank you for the love that you have shown in Christ Jesus. Lord, help us to see this more clearly and embrace this more deeply. 
and all that follows as we meditate, as we engage, as we wrestle through this passage together. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So I want to start this sermon, actually, by, by talking about an article that I had read recently. And in it, the, the writer, he was reminiscing about being in fifth grade, and, and the teacher had asked his class to draw the future as the students would imagine it. And thinking back on that experience, he writes this. He says, I have no recollection of what I drew. Probably some giant robot or a flying car. We can relate to that. But one thing stuck and stayed with me for years. My classmates and I all had one thing in common. We all imagined a future in which some sort of machine does something to make human life a little bit easier and more pleasant. And what makes him think about this is, is, is the recent advance right, in, in so-called artificial intelligence, in AI that's, that's been all over the news for a while now. And as a writer, he has been thinking a lot about what ChatGPT can do. He points out that it can write faster than him, it can do so without getting tired, and it can do so without snacks and food. And he's actually seen it at work. He, he tests it. He asks it to write a, a, a sermon for his local synagogue, first in the style of Groucho Marx, and then in the style of Jerry Seinfeld. And it does it. And he says it actually does it convincingly and very well. And it does it in just a few seconds. And so he and we, we might wonder, are we being replaced? Is there a place for us when AI and technology seems to do everything that we're doing, but faster and more efficiently and much cheaper? But here's the thing. Answering that question, absolutely everything rides on this. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? And for a long time now, we have actually imagined ourselves as computers. Or at least we've held up computers as the human ideal. I once heard the brain described as a computer made of meat. And if it's true that humans are essentially computers, then actual computers, they cannot help but be better at being human than us. The author of the article, he says this, We hail and reward productivity, focus, and output. We regale ourselves with life hacks, ways of being more efficient while exerting less effort. In short, we've come to think like machines. Or we might say it like this. We've actually come to think about ourselves like we are machines. And if life is all about productivity and efficiency and output and with putting in the least amount of effort to get the biggest result, then yes, we are certainly en route to being replaced. As we all know from sci-fi movies and books, there have long been these kind of doomsday scenarios, right, about machines or robots taking over and destroying humanity. But what if there's actually a much, much more subtle form of this and, and one that doesn't involve Arnold Schwarzenegger movies? What if we let machines destroy humanity because we've already come to think about ourselves as machines? And absolutely, actual machines will be better at being machines than us. 
If we're just a bunch of machines, then machines have already overthrown us by becoming more human than us. Absolutely, computers, they can produce output much more efficiently, much quicker, much more cheaply than any of us, any of us can. And that might sound like a really strange way to start a sermon on this passage, but this is actually one of the key issues we find here. This question, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? And as we'll see from this passage, we are not replaceable. We are not simply productivity generators. We are not second-rate computers. We are not something that AI could ever become. We are human. And so with that truth in mind, let's look at this passage under three headings. A new creation, a new temptation, and a new way. So let's look at each of those in turn, starting with a new creation. So let's look first at the scene of Jesus' baptism. And, and a number of things are happening here. And one of the key things that's happening is this picture of the new creation. The scene parallels the account in Genesis, the account of the creation of the world right at the beginning of Genesis 1. We read this at the very beginning of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. In the creation account of God making everything from nothing, we encounter the primordial waters at the beginning of this process. Genesis presents the first part of the creation process as the creation of these waters. From these waters will flow the rest of the creation account. And we also find something else about these waters. We're told the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And commentators point out that what we have here is, is bird imagery. For example, Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner writes that we find a simile of the mother bird hovering or fluttering over her brood. In fact, Kidner points out that the Hebrew verb here translated as hover, it reappears in Deuteronomy 32.11 to describe the eagle's movements in stirring its young into flight. And so Genesis presents the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, in the imagery of a bird brooding and nesting over all of creation. By implications, the waters themselves are, are pictured as a kind of nest from which all of creation springs. And so right at the beginning of the Bible's account of creation, we find this image, this imagery of water and birds. We find imagery that is aquatic and avian. And in light of today's passage, this should seem very, very familiar, right? Jesus is immersed in the waters. And for a moment, the crowds in John the Baptist, they see only water. There is no Jesus. We're back to the beginning of Genesis. We're back to just the waters. And then Christ emerges from the waters, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him, rests upon him, broods and nests over him in the likeness of a dove. The Gospels are presenting Christ's baptism as the beginning of a new creation. Creation is being made new. 
John's baptism marks the start of Jesus' public ministry. And Christ, in his ministry, is making all things new. But there's more. It's not just God the Holy Spirit, but also God the Father that we encounter in today's passage. We must remember that the true God is the triune God. God exists as one God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the three divine persons just are three distinct personal modes of possessing the one divine nature. And in today's passage, God, the Holy Spirit, he appears in the likeness of a dove. And these words of God the Father are heard as Jesus emerges from the water. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And this also points us back to creation. In Genesis 1 and 2, we find the creation of humanity. We find the creation of Adam. And it is here especially the account of John's baptism, or sorry, the account of Jesus' baptism in Luke is especially helpful. Again, this, this scene is depicted in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Luke's gospel, Christ's baptism is directly followed by a genealogy that begins with Jesus, the son of Joseph, and it reaches all the way back through the generations, all the way back to Adam. And the end of the genealogy reads like this, the son of Adam, the son of God. In a very special sense, Adam is the son of God. And in today's passage, Jesus is identified as the beloved son of God the Father. This also points us to the new creation. Jesus is the new Adam. Like in Genesis, Jesus emerges from the primordial waters under the wings of the nesting spirit as the beloved son of God. We've got Genesis 1 and 2 recounted here in a beautiful, beautiful way. We have here the beginning of the new creation in the ministry of the new Adam. And it makes sense, it makes sense that the Son, the Word, would become human and make humanity new. As John's Gospel tells us, all things were made through the Word, through the Logos, through the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. All creation all creation was made through him, and so all creation is modeled upon him, upon his role in the Trinity. The Son is the one who receives his being from the Father and turns back to the Father in the love of the Holy Spirit. He is the beloved Son of God, just like the Son is from and to the Father, so humanity is meant to be from and to God, receiving from God and turning back to God in love. In Christ, the divine model of humanity has become a particular human. The one who is the beloved son of the Father according to his divine nature now becomes the beloved son of the Father according to his human nature, his humanity. And in this way, the one who eternally comes before Adam, the one on whom Adam himself was modeled, now comes to us as the new Adam. This is an amazing truth. And you might be asking yourself, okay, but how does all of this relate to that question, that question of what does it mean to be human? Well, if we are to understand ourselves, we have no better place to look than to Christ. Christ, the one who is, who is human in all the way that God intends us to be human. 
Christ is human in the way that Adam should have been human but failed to do so. Again, Christ has come to make all things, including us, new. But we also have to be careful here. As the, as the Byzantine theologian Maximus the Confessor tells us, this is important, when the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, that all things have become new, this does not mean that all things have become something else. Christ's ministry works to make all things new, but not by making them something else. He doesn't make us something other than human. No, Christ makes things what God always intended them to be and to become. If we think about trees, we might say Christ's ministry does not take the acorn and turn it into the rose bush. That would be making it something else. No, Christ's ministry takes the acorn and turns it into the oak tree. He turns the acorn into what it was always meant to be. That is Christ's ministry of new creation. That is how he makes new our humanity. Christ's ministry of new creation is a ministry of restoring and perfecting humanity. And, and with humanity, all of creation. And so what do we see here? In this scene in Christ, in Christ, the new and true human, well, we see that it starts with relationships. It starts with receiving the love of God. You are my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased and Christ's loving return to God. The Holy Spirit is the love shared between the Father and the Son. And here the humanity of Christ is loving God with the love who is God, the Holy Spirit, pictured here as a dove. And so what do we see here as the core of our humanity? Is it something that AI can replace? Is it a particular kind of efficiency or productivity or output? No, it's, it, it's none of these things. It is receiving the love of God as a child of God and turning back in love to God. In the Confessions, Augustine tells us that the key human desire, the core human desire is this, to love and to be loved. To love and to be loved. And at Christ's baptism, we see the perfect picture of this. We find, we find that we are fundamentally relational creatures. The way that he receives the love of God the Father and turns back to him in love. And this truth, friends, is more important now than ever. Uh, last May, the U.S. Surgeon General, for example, uh, Dr. Vivek Murthy, he released an official warning on our epidemic of loneliness and isolation. He recognizes our collective societal loneliness and he goes as far as to call it an epidemic. He says we should approach it with the same intensity with which we approach other critical health issues like tobacco, obesity, and substance abuse. It's that bad. And the way we think about our output and the way that we think about our productivity, which is we think of ourselves like machines, friends, this only increases our loneliness. For instance, literature professor Alan Noble, he says that as modern people, we experience, quote, 
The pressure to work longer hours, develop a social media brand, and constantly improve our lifestyle, all the while being inundated with warnings about debts, injustices, crime, and health. A life of unending and unrewarded competition and self-improvement through increased efficiency and optimization is overwhelming, depressing, and unsatisfying. This is not what we were made for, and we know it. But rather than confront the problem, we blame ourselves and work harder. Noble then says this, the way we live together is sick. The way we live together is sick. What do we pursue with our actions? A life of unending and unrewarded competition and self-improvement through increased efficiency and optimization. Or to put it another way, right? We treat ourselves like machines. Our worth and our identity and our dignity is our productivity and our output. The other person is not a neighbor to be loved, but a competitor to outperform. And so we're alone. And, and what do we do? We, we, we simply respond by seeking, seeking more efficient productivity and output, which only makes us more alone. So yes, if that's what we are, we are replaceable by AI. We will and are becoming obsolete. But even more, we are lonely and isolated. Yes, please hear me. We should and must steward well the tasks that God has given to us. We should work hard with both diligence and gratitude. And we should remember that all that we steward is a gift. But we are not our work. We are not just a matter of our functions and the tasks that we perform. We are not our resumes. We are not our bank accounts. We are not our exercise programs. We are not our college acceptance letters. We are not replaceable. And I feel this too. More often than I like to admit, what actually determines whether I'm in a good mood at the end of the day and how well I'm engaging my friends and family is this. Did I get a lot done that day? Did I finish my to-do list? And when I don't, I can be distant. I can be sitting across the table from my family, from the actual people that I get to share life with, and instead my mind is completely elsewhere. I'm, I'm thinking about the emails I didn't write, thinking about the meetings I didn't have, I'm thinking about the sermon I didn't finish. And, and Kristen is very good at catching me at this, right? I know for me, maybe you all have your own telltale signs. I'm sure you don't, or sure you do. And if you don't know what they are, please do ask your friends and family because I'm sure they can fill you in. I know for me, my head starts to nod and my, my pupils start to move into the corners of, of my eyes. And that's when my family knows. And when I do this, I'm forgetting what kind of creature I actually am. I'm not a machine, I'm a human. And whenever you can't focus on the people right in front of you because of the status of your to-do list, you are forgetting this too. So here's a diagnostic question. Would you have a horribly, horribly unproductive day, which we all have, when you finish so little of what you actually wanted to do, are you still able to be wholly present to and engaging with the people in front of you? And if not, you are treating yourself like a machine. You are replaceable by AI. But here's the thing. Most fundamentally, we are relational creatures, creatures whom God intends to receive these words. This is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. 
But humanity has always had difficulty in receiving these words, which brings us to our second point, a new temptation. In the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we find that the account of Satan's, sorry, of Christ's temptation by Satan, it comes immediately after, right after the account of Jesus' baptism. For instance, in Matthew's Gospel, after the baptism scene, right after we read these words, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased, we right away read this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Mark actually tells us that this happened immediately afterwards. And this sequence in the Gospels, three Gospels, it tells us something. The sequence of the words of the Father being directly followed by Christ's temptation in the wilderness, it tells us that we have to hold these two events very tightly together. So what is going on here? Well, take note. The words of God the Father to Christ, you are my beloved son, these are the very words tested in the wilderness. Notice that the first two temptations of Satan to Christ begin with the phrase, if you are the son of God. What does Satan want to call into question? What does Satan want to test? What does Satan want Christ to disbelieve? It's this. He wants Christ to disbelieve that he is the beloved son of God. And take note, the primary form of Satan's temptation here is to make Christ doubt that he is the beloved son of God. Realize that. Reckon with that. And Satan knows exactly what he's doing here. He's done this before. Remember that Christ is the second Adam. And back in Genesis 3, Satan tempted the first Adam in precisely the same way. Back in the Garden of Eden, Satan made Adam and Eve suspicious. He made them question whether God really did love them. He, he convinced them that God was miserly and, and selfish and manipulative and stingy and withholding and untrustworthy. Why else, Satan asks, would, would God keep you from enjoying this, this, this delicious fruit? Satan made them disbelieve that they are beloved children of God, and they gave in to this temptation. And ever since then, the default setting of the human heart is to hold on to the lie that God is not a loving father. And for us, a key component for our sin is always, always, always a distrust in God and his good and gracious fatherly purposes for us. It is a rejection of receiving and loving God as our good and gracious father. And friends, Satan knows this. Just as he tempted the first Adam, he now tempts the second. If you are the beloved son of God, then command these stones to be bread. If you are the beloved son of God, wouldn't God give you food right here, right now, in the way that you want? If you are the beloved son of God, wouldn't God let you throw yourself down from the temple and, and he'll save you, right? If you are the beloved son of God, wouldn't God deliver you from any situation you put yourself in in the, in the, sorry, in the way that you think best? Right, that's, that's what he's saying here. But here's the thing. The, the, the same questions that Satan posed to Christ are now questions that we pose to ourselves. If we are the beloved children of God, shouldn't my life go like this? If we are the beloved children of God, why did this happen and not that. If we are the beloved children of God, 
Shouldn't I have received this and not that? If we are the beloved children of God, why on earth have things turned out like this? The temptation here is to assume that if God loves us as his children, then our lives should go just as we think that they should. But here's the thing. The God who made us and the God who sustains us, by definition, must know what is best for us, even and especially when we disagree. Otherwise, he is not God, and we are wiser than God. As with Christ and the Israelites before him, we have a God who leads us into the wilderness. And it is in the wilderness, it's in those moments when our health or our finances or our family or friendships or careers do not go as planned, it is precisely in those moments that we are most tempted to doubt the love of God. But at the same time, it is also in these moments that we are invited to cling more deeply to God and to his good and gracious purposes than ever before. I say this with trepidation, but, but, but somehow the trials that God brings into our lives are meant to grow us in the particular ways God intends to grow us before the very foundation of the world. God ordained the struggles that we are now facing as the wisest way for us to grow into the full stature of the children of God. That's not an easy truth, not by any means, but it's a biblical truth. The problem, the problem is that we want a God who loves us less, not a God who loves us more. C.S. Lewis captures this dynamic well. He says, when Christianity says that God loves man, it means that God loves man. You asked for a loving God, you have one. Not a senile benevolence that drowsily wishes you to be happy in your own way, nor the care of a host who feels responsible for the comfort of his guests, but the consuming fire himself, the love that made the worlds. If it is God who loves us, then this is a love that will challenge and correct us. If, it is, if it's God who loves us, this will be a love that cuts against our comfort and our expectations. It is a love that knows what is best even when we wish for precisely the opposite. If it is the love of God himself, it is more powerful and wiser and, yes, more loving than the lesser love we often desire. What we actually want in our hearts is a God who loves us less than this. We relate to God like, like toddlers who, who want their parents to love them just enough to feed them, but not enough to take the lit match from their hands. And when you take away that lit match from the hands of a toddler, they may something, say something like this, you don't love me. And in that moment, you are actually in a pretty good place to understand the love of God. What is it that we want from God? God, love us just enough to leave us to ourselves so that things don't get messy and difficult. Love us just enough to make us feel good about what we're already doing, not so much that we might actually have to change our lives. Love us just enough to keep in place our ideas of finances and vocation and professional practices and sexuality and ambitions and schedules and relationships. Don't love us so much that we might actually have to change them. And so really, the question we ask ourselves is this. 
If we are the beloved children of God, can't God love us just a little bit less than this? Perhaps right now you are undergoing a difficult trial. Satan and your fallen heart will tempt you to believe that this is proof that you are not a beloved child of God. And yet the truth of Christ is that God is using this very trial to grow you into that stature of a beloved child of God. For instance, if your struggles are with parenting, how is this growing you in patience and in your ability to control your anger and your frustration when your children do this or that? Maybe for the first time you're realizing just how deep your anger actually goes. If your struggles are with relational hardships, how is this growing you into a forgiving and repenting person when everything inside of you wants to hold on to bitterness? Maybe for the first time you are realizing just how deep your bitterness goes. If your struggles are with health issues, how is this growing you in recognizing the real fragility of all of our bodies and the fact that we are all aging and all moving towards death? Maybe for the first time you are realizing that even the longest, healthiest life is actually a very delicate and a very short thing. These trials are hard. They're very hard. And this isn't to call bad things good, things like health problems. No, those are are bad things. Those are not God's design for creation. But we are called to recognize that God intends to use those things to grow us. And so here is the huge question of faith. Can we see these trials as evidence for rather than arguments against God's great love for us. And I don't mean to trivialize our struggles here, not at all, but in a sense, God asks no more from us here than does the parent who takes away the match from the child. This is what great love does, and through it all, we must remember that the core of our humanity is to receive the love of God and to love God in return. And unlike Adam and unlike us, Christ holds fast to the love of God the Father, even in the most painful and difficult of circumstances. And that takes us to our third and final point, a new way. We have spoken here of being beloved children of God, but friends, all of us, we have rejected this. We are all children estranged from our good and gracious Father. We have all done wrong. And as with any relationship, reunion will require the work of reconciliation. And this is exactly what Christ's ministry of new creation does. It brings us back to God the Father. There's another time. There's another time in the Gospel of Matthew where Christ, where Christ is addressed with these words. If you are the Son of God. If you are the Son of God, as Christ hangs on the cross, enduring the most difficult trial of all, we're told that those who passed by mocked him, and they said this, If you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Understandably, right, the crowd thinks that God wouldn't let his son die a shameful and painful death on the cross. But remember the Father's full statement to Christ. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And these words spoken to Christ, they just are our salvation. 
What God offers us in Christ is the invitation to become beloved children of God with whom he is well pleased. But how can God be well pleased? Remember, God's love for us is greater than we might desire. It is a love that knows what's best for us, even when we have very different ideals about our life. It is a love that will not leave us in our sin. In fact, it is a love that cannot bear sin. And so, the sinful creatures that we are, this love, God's love, will take us places we would rather not go. But friends, this love has taken even God himself and the person of Christ to the most severe depth of sacrifice. God's love for us is a love that has cost God dearly. The consequences of sin are death and separation from God. And on the cross, in his human nature, Christ experienced these on our behalf for us. He took the consequences of our sin to undo the wrong that we had done in our relationship with God. Christ took the consequences we deserve. Christ in God reconciles us to himself by taking upon himself the horrible consequences of our rejection of God. This is the salvation of Christ. Precisely because you are the Son of God, you will not come down from that cross. And what's the effect? It's that the words spoken to Christ become words spoken to us. You are my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. These are words that Christ alone deserves, and yet if we place our faith in Christ, these are words that God lovingly speaks to us. And so, friends... Friends, at any time that those in Christ are tempted to doubt that we are truly beloved children of God, you have to look at the cross, and you need to remember and meditate and see more clearly the supreme act of love. We are not machines. No, God intends us to be his beloved children with whom he is well pleased. And Christ, by his ministry of new creation, has made this possible. And it's not just from the waters of baptism that Christ emerges. After his death upon the cross, Christ emerges from the tomb, from death itself. By his resurrection, Christ truly ushers in the new creation, in his humanity. He shows us what God always intended us to be. He emerges with a resurrected body, without death, without corruption, without sickness of any kind, and Christ's present is our future. We await a world without sin, a world without sickness, without envy, without sorrow, without any impediment to the love of God and neighbor. And right now, we anticipate this new and true creation by receiving the love of God and turning back to God in love. And this loving and being loved must take root here in the life and the community of the church. If you refuse to make time to make effort to participate in the life of the church and the communion of saints, you are working against your humanity. Remember the, the quote from Alan Noble. A life of unending and unrewarded competition and self-improvement through increased efficiency and optimization is overwhelming, depressing, and unsatisfying. And so ask yourself, does this describe you? 
Is this the treadmill that your life is on? Are you isolated and are you longing for deeper relationships? Do you live in a world not of companions, but competitors? Do you worry more about your next email than the hearts of the people sitting beside you in the pews right now? Do you think that you're a kind of exception who, who just doesn't need people as much as other people do? Do you deeply know and love the people in this room right here, right now? Friends, are you alone? And can we help? This is what the community of the church is for. Christ offers us another way to be human, and his way is the only proper path to being human. So today, if you hear the voice of the Lord, do not harden your hearts. Love and be loved. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for all that you've given to us. We thank you for Christ Jesus. We thank you for the path that he opens up. We thank you that because of his work, Lord, the words of Christ, the words that you've given to Christ, you are my beloved child with whom I'm well pleased. Those can be words that you lavish upon us. Thank you, Lord, that because of the work of Christ, we have no need to ever doubt that you have given us your love. May we grow into that divine mystery to love and to be loved. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.